Welcome to this week's episode of From the Lighthouse. Today I'm joined in the studio by Roberta Kwan from the Macquarie English Department and Shakespearean scholar um, and expert in the Reformation and Meredith Lake, historian and writer and prize-winning writer interested in the ways Australians have understood the big questions of faith and meaning. And we're here to talk about the Bible in Australia, Meredith's recent um, release and in fact that has gone into a reprint mode already only months after its, its first release. So welcome Meredith and welcome Roberta. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ah, it's so looking forward to what a fascinating book and so much research. Roberta, um, you have our first question. Sure, yeah. Um, Meredith, um, I was, found your book an amazing read. Um, it was compelling, uh, as Michelle said, incredible amount of research. Absolute page it. turner. Yeah, yeah, yes. Which, to be honest, I wasn't necessarily expecting on uh, about a book. Um, yeah, of Australian history, I guess. Um, and But yeah, it really uh, gripped me. Um, yeah, and I, as I read, I became really convinced that, uh, about, I guess, your argument that the Bible has got under the skin of Australian society and culture, to use the very evocative metaphor um, from the opening of your book, um, and which really helped me to come away um, really understanding more about Australian history as well as, um, yeah, and in a way that persuaded me that the Bible is an intrinsic part of that history. Uh, just a couple of thoughts um, or questions. Do you want to elaborate a bit more on that idea of the Bible getting under the skin of Australia? Um, and also, did you write the book with the sense that um, that this would actually be um, the situation? Was that was that your thesis to start off with, or did it surprise you as well as it as it did me? Well, I think there is a lot that's surprising about the history of the Bible in Australia, and I, I kind of approached the the subject, if you like, as a as an historian, which is you know my training and my interest. Um, and once you start to think historically about the Bible, what, what are we even talking about? Is it just a book? Is it a set, of, a set of ideas? It circulates kind of in fragments as bits of language, as maybe a set of ethical impulses, um, but also as quite literally as tattoos. And, and in that sense, it's quite literally been under the skin of Australians. Mm -hmm. and one I loved of, the opening um, motif of the Bra Boys yeah. and My Brother's Keeper. How I mean, they're a great example. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, the, the kind of hyper-masculine surfer tribe from Maroubra Beach that was associated, you know, with the, you know, the riots and kind of often a fairly confronting version of Australian masculinity. Yeah, really tribal, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but tattooed around their shoulders um, is that slogan, My Brother's Keeper, which is a line from the book of Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel, um, which is about sibling rivalry to the point that Cain murders Abel and then says to God when he's questioned about it, am I my mother, brother's keeper, to try and kind of wash his hands of it. But the Bra Boys, what fascinated me is they take that phrase, my brother's keeper, and flip its meaning. So for them, it's like, no, I am my brother's keeper, and this is our primary loyalty. This is our tribal identity. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a really kind of surprising example of how, in one way, the Bible's everywhere, even in that kind of hyper-masculine subculture. And yet, really secular. Yeah, well. its meanings aren't necessarily theological. It's kind of floating, it, even different to what a a more orthodox theological reading might be. It's It's been totally reshaped for cultural and social purposes. And that, for me, was um, that idea of being under the skin, but in a surprising way, not necessarily in step with the mainstream of Christian teaching or something like that, that the Bible has this life outside 
the life of faith outside the life of the churches that's that's very pervasive but um, not not always what we expect and so that that feeling of surprise mm. I mean it goes right back convicts uh, came to Australia with biblical tattoos uh, because at the time of transportation kind of as the working class was becoming increasingly literate like the pictorial Bibles uh, were, were mass circulated at that time and they were kind of like the tattooists handbook uh, so there were a lot of convicts came with um, crosses and crucifixes even images of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden um, it's kind of part of the visual iconography, if you like, of popular culture. Uh, so that mm-hmm. idea of being under the skin very literally has kind of been quite consistent through Australia's settler history. And I, and I think that was the, one of the things that really struck me was your ability to read those um, sort of symbols, images and icons in the artwork um, and also in the literature um, of artists like um, Arthur Boyd, um, Mm. Margaret Preston, writers such as Tim Winton and um, Patrick White, Mm. Helen Garner. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, I think um, there's there's a few things that really struck me in kind of looking a bit more into the, you know, where has the Bible been taken up among kind of Australia's kind of creative minds? Um, and, And part of it for someone someone like Patrick White or Arthur Boyd, um, it was kind of a, for the modernists, um, I guess it was a repository of myth and symbol that they could kind of leverage to explore the Australian experience or the, the, the psychology of settler Australia at that moment when kind of the assumptions of empire are starting to unravel in the mid 20th century and the kind of the horrors of Nazi Germany um, and, and, and that kind of catastrophic war, world war, are kind of really confronting Australian society with the question of human nature. And Boyd, Boyd reaches straight for, um, for the Bible. He grew, he grew up with a very kind of um, deeply biblically engaged father who was kind of a seer, prophet-like figure. But Boyd himself didn't have a particular Christian faith and even says that he found kind of no comfort there. Mm-hmm. But that, that language, um, the visual language, the, the narrative... Uh, potency of the scriptural narratives are, are what give, um, like his Nebuchadnezzar series, for example, or his um, other paintings of Adam and Eve, um, the Prodigal Son. Lots of his works are just are grappling with, um, kind of, I guess the what it feels like to be Australian in this really difficult global moment, but using the the narratives of scripture to kind of give that power. Look, I, mm-hmm. I, and I think that was one of the things that was really gripping about the book was that you actually open with that really quite startling question, what is the Bible, does it exist? And then what you proceed to do, I think, is put it in a uniquely Australian culture um, and explore things like the uh, notion that Wowser and Bible Basher are actually um, <laughs> particularly Australian yes. in origin, which um, I'd love you to talk a little bit about if, if you can, that sort of irreverence that's Oh, yeah. so deeply built into Australian culture. Um, and I think it's kind of, um, Australia has a couple of um, favourite myths about itself. And uh, one is that it's this, you know, ever since the convicts has been profoundly godless um, and, and that, you know, the church has always been kind of this inconvenient imposition on the ordinary ordinary life of Australians. And that anti-clericalism, that kind of suspicion of authority, particularly of clerical authority, moralising um, kind of thing that that, that's a definite strain I think in Australian cultural history Um, but that's not quite the same thing as the history of the Bible and 
uh, what what have people what's their experience of reading what's their experience of hearing a sermon preached and there were probably something like two million sermons preached in Australia just in the 19th century like it's a people were encountering this text in all kinds of forms in all kinds of ways very pervasive in a way that it isn't now uh, and people had views about that that were distinct from their attitudes to clerical authority uh, so what was interesting to me when you put the Bible at the center of the story you get quite a different a, a different narrative about Australia that's a bit more diffuse a bit more complicated um, and and at the Telling same time, Australian history slant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, but but yes, Bible yeah. bash is fascinating. It it comes from that late nineteenth century moment when kind of what kind of society is this becoming? There's the you know the union movement is getting organised into parliamentary politics with the formation of the Labor Party. There's suffra uh, suffragists clamouring for um, voting rights for women. Um, it's the time when Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson and that kind of radical nationalist set, kind of artistic set, are trying to articulate an authentic Australianness as they understand. Like it, the question of what is this society, what are its cultural imperatives, is really kind of potent and everybody's arguing about that. And that's the context that Bible basher as a phrase comes from. There's, it goes with a whole lot of other slang that we don't have so much, but um, like an amen snorter or a, a devil dodger <laughs> or a sky pilot. But all, these words, yeah, all these words for clergymen, like I think we should bring them back. Right. Um, they're, they're great words. But yeah. that, that idea of a, of a Bible, a moralizing type, mm -hmm. telling other people what to do, stay on the straight and narrow, like the, the intolerance of that uh, is part of that mix. Mm. Um, and it actually relies on the existence of a, a sort of an organising text, doesn't it? Yeah. In, in order to... There has to be a canon to reject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, um, but at the same time... A, sorry? I was going to say there's another myth, though, isn't there, as well? About, yeah. You know, Australian as a, as a Christian, you know, as a... But that's the counter myth yes, that we yes, often hear, isn't it, that, a, that Australia is somehow a Christian nation mm -hmm. in, in often it's... Sim the subtext is in decline from that. Mm. Um, but I think the story of the Bible, again actually problematizes that narrative just as much as the godless nation myth because by the time you know the colonists bring the bible to australia europeans are having a full-throated argument about its authority about its meaning its its inspiration like so when when cook sails the south pacific some of his readers of his journals kind of think oh my goodness there's all these people we need to convert them and other people read his journals and go well, obviously the Bible can't be divine revelation for the whole world because it doesn't even imagine these peoples that Europeans have just become aware of. So clearly its authority is limited and the, that kind of sceptical mm. reading is also given a boost, if you like, by the experience of encountering the South Pacific from a European point of view. So it, they're already arguing about the Bible and, and there was actually the that moment, there yeah. was, I thought one of the moments that was really fascinating, I mean, there were many fascinating moments, but one of them was when you said that it was probably not that far away from actually being a Southeast Asian Christianity that sort of permeated Australia, um, as opposed to a European one, you know, that if Cook hadn't have um, sort of landed, then in some sense there was that suggestion that in, indeed the, the type of Christianity that w w um, sort of took root in, in Australia may well have been um, a Southeast Asian Chinese um, in can you speak about that a little bit? Well, it's bit? one of the, the great what-ifs, isn't it? Mm, because mm. Um, um, Muslim uh, traders from um, what's now Indonesia had uh, were in contact with the Yolngu in um, Arnhem Land for, for decades before Europeans kind of established settler colonies in what's now New South Wales. Um, and so there's the, the kind of cultural transmission, if you like, of, of ideas um, was already happening in, in the north of Australia. 
um, from a very different kind of set of cultures and, and religious beliefs. And there is a history of um, Eastern Christianity through China and it's hard, it's hard to know from archaeological evidence how far south it came. Um, but there is, there is a history of Christianity in Indonesia. And for, I mean, um, there's lots of reasons why that had kind of not continued to expand to the south by the time Europeans arrived in Australia. And then you get kind of European empires, the Dutch in Indonesia, they start translating the New Testament. And Cook comes across um, uh, translations of the New Testament in Indonesia on his way back to Europe after... Um, um, sailing up the east coast of what's now Australia, um, and it's just one of those. If, if he hadn't, if the English hadn't colonised, you wonder what what other histories of Christianity might have might have played out and would have eventually kind of been transmitted to Australia. Because while obviously the title, you know, sort of really introduces the, that idea of the Bible within Australia, I think one of the things that really galvanises the story is the degree to which the text is is innately a global and a globalising sort of force and that's one of the that's one of the phenomena that you chart is in actual fact that this sort of I guess the movement from a, a European Bible to a, a much more multicultural um, form of Christianity and, and Bible um, that is probably dominant today um, which mm. is interesting I, I thought um, where, where do you sort of situate um, the, the, the Bible at this point uh, I, I'm, I'm actually at this I'm, I'm thinking about the uh, the phenomena that I had <laughs> no idea about such as the surfers Bible or um, you know the, the Aussie Bible yeah the, the Aussie, Aussie Bible yeah. where we have paddocks instead of fields um, yeah so so I, I'm really interested to hear your take on um, this this sort of phenomenon of, of that Bible as, as, a, as a sort of a cultural artifact as well yeah I mean that I mean I'm a cultural historian so that that for me is really the part of the interesting story too mm -hmm. and th there's a few things in Australia's history why that's been important one is that the Bible arrives in the hands of Europeans, and not only that, but Europeans who are intent on, you know, appropriating someone else's land and setting up their own settler societies. And so the, it's it's wrapped up, if you like, with the agendas of imperial settlement, um, and that's crucial to the way its influence has played out, the way it's been received, particularly by Indigenous Australians, and that um, the complexity of its, um, the way it's bound up with um, imperial intentions and purposes is is that that's um, really important to its story but at the same time the way the Bible is not captive to any one particular cultural tradition I mean even in its original forms it's a multilingual document it's you know it's in Hebrew and Greek and in parts of it in Aramaic um, it's a it's a it's the product even in its canonical form of multiple linguistic and cultural communities mm -hmm. um, and that that diversity, even in a hegemonic translation like the King James in English, um, it's still got that disruptive potential, if you like, in in its in what the kind of text that it is, um, and what it can it, the way it crosses and reshapes cultural boundaries is uh, really crucial. And the story of the way Indigenous Australians have kind of had it imposed upon them by Europeans with their own kind of civilizing agendas, um, in their terms. Um, and yet the way Indigenous readers have often subverted those agendas, either by rejecting it outright or by rereading it in a way that affirms their own dignity, their own um, right to land, um, their own value. And the of the sort of treatment. Yeah. and to mm -hmm. critique white society yes. on the basis of scripture. I mean, there's um, the example of William Cooper, who founded NADOC Week, mm -hmm. uh, for example. There's um, Bill Ferguson, the Labor, Indigenous Labor activist, 
Margaret Tucker. Um, there's numerous examples of Indigenous Christians who've taken the Bible out of the hands of the colonisers and, and, and read it back against white society to critique it for being insufficiently Christian. Yeah. Um, which is, it, it's a very powerful critique. I mean, Cooper, for example, founded the Day of Mourning um, at the sesquicentenary of white settlement. And we're still having a conversation about whether 26th of January is an appropriate national holiday. What is Australia Day? And I mean, he's be, he was making that argument 70 years ago. And his critique is one I think our society still needs to hear. But to do that, to hear him um, understanding his use of scripture, um, read in an, with an indigenous hermeneutic, if I can put it that way, uh, is actually critical to that task. Like, I, th I think it's a really, who, whose property is this, um, mm -hmm. is, is a deeply political question. It's wrapped up with who has power and who hasn't. Um, but the way the Bible kind of has been in the hands of the powerful to oppress, but also been taken up by people on the margins, whether they're indigenous, whether they're uh, women, or whether they're people with disabilities, or what, whatever the people who are struggling with a marginalised status might be, that the Bible has somehow in their, there are examples of, of the Bible in their hands to kind of critique the power structure of their time. And that's, that's why it's such a potent thing to, stu to study, I think. Yeah, I mean, that that sort of authority that marginalised people can draw upon is one of the threads in your book that really, um, you know, sort of really grabs the reader. And especially somebody who isn't religious, um, you know, I, I was surprised by how compelling I found um, the Bible in, in Australia. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yes, I, um, yeah, I guess for me, part of what made it so compelling, I think, was the number of stories that you wove together, um, all those sort of, um, you know, fragments um, of people's um, very complex engagement with the Bible and the way that the Bible impacted, um, you know, lives in all sorts of ways. Um, I, you know, I, so I, I guess I'm thinking a bit about the process of, that you went through of um, putting those stories together. Um, yeah, how, how did you actually sort of draw them together into into that really compelling narrative um, you know, that, that your book has become? You know, that, I, I don't the know how. Process, yeah, the, I don't know the, how many. My writing how process, many people, yeah. You know, I, I was starting to count how many. You know, you know, characters, so to speak, that I was. And yet, uh, reading there's about. a real sense of cohesiveness yeah, yes. from beginning to end, and so I can only imagine the amount of labour that went into producing um, such a such a richly researched book. I mean, I mean, it was great. Um, <laughs> I'm still, I've still got the scars, I guess, of the process. Yes. I mean, no one who writes a book ever finds that easy, I don't think. It was Thomas Mann who said, you know, a writer is someone for whom writing is harder than it is for everybody else. <laughs> and I think there's such a, a truth about about that insight. Um, but I mean, it was a, it, it, the thing, I, I'm just fascinated mm -hmm. by Australian history because it's, it's a way of, um, I guess, trying to understand the world from another point of view. And that the, the historian's privilege, I guess, is that you can start everything with, like, literally once upon a time. It's 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 the perfect discipline for storytelling, mm. um, because that's that's that, that that's and na narrative is at the core of what history is. It's about making meaning from the past, um, which is an inherently narrative art. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not it's not, and, and we can't avoid the narrative element of the discipline. We actually need to be wise <laughs> about it. Um, and conscious of the 
the power, I guess, involved in Cause the dot, our choices. Because depending about, on the dots you draw yes. together, the, 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 the causality that yeah. you... In, 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 There's a politics, yeah. absolutely. Um, and so for this, for this book, I guess, um, I felt uh, free to let, um, to let the narrative, narratives I wanted to tell have their space and not be shy about, well, it is a storytelling art, I think, um, as much as it's about argument. Um, so I tried, I guess it was a, a way of writing that I was experimenting with for the first time with this book coming from a more academic background. So that was actually part of the joy of, of, of doing this book uh, was just um, t- telling some stories that I'd found compelling myself, whether that's mm-hmm. a suffragette uh, or, you know, especially the Indigenous uh, uh, people who, whose writing I read um, was fascinating to me. Because you really take it right up to the contemporary. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we've got, you know, sort of writers like Helen Gardner, Tim yep. Winton, but we've also got uh, musicians, Paul Kelly, Nick yeah. Cave, etc. Yeah. Um, was all the research, uh, traditional research methods, were you also interviewing people? What what sort of stuff did so you do? I'm not used to writing about people who are still alive, yeah. actually. that was That's one of the new things for this project. I'm used to writing about people <laughs> who are already dead. Um, so I mainly... Uh, went on what people had written. So, I mean, Helen Garner, for example, has written a couple of really fascinating essays. One's called, like, On Being Bad at Reading the Bible. One's about the creative process behind her novel, Cosmo Cosmolino. She has this great anecdote about being completely stuck uh, trying to make progress with this novel. She had a two-year grant, so she had plenty of time and money, but didn't know how to kind of actually get this novel to work. And walking along uh, Enmore Road to one day, passing an op shop, and seeing inside an old an old Bible and thinking, oh well, like why not? I'll buy it mm-hmm. like for two dollars or whatever, and you know I'll just sit down and read the whole thing. I've got time, and maybe that will help me get through this creative impasse. And and she writes about being kind of absolutely gripped and shocked, actually, on a technical level, but on a narrative level, on a moral level, like the, the horror of some of <laughs> the narrative, um, and and finding that quite revolutionary in her creative process for that novel and when you read Cosmo Cosmolino you can see um, and she's written about this the the impact of um, even just the sentence structures like of a parable like a man had two sons you know she, she starts part of that novel consider Maxine and that's now known as a Ghana opening but it's it's in my understanding it seems quite a clear uh, use of the kind of narrative structures of of part of the New Testament um, and that the way that the the Bible kind of burst helped her burst through uh, is fast. I mean, she's just one example, and that's not because it was somehow God's word, or it, it, but as a as a piece of literature that's complex, that's multivocal, uh, surprising, um, and and a piece of ancient. Like, there's a reason why these stories are still read. Like, there, there's some really compelling stories uh, in 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 the Christian Bible that I think has enlarged the creative imagination of of all kinds of people. Doesn't she write about a group uh, where they? And decide to read the Psalms together. Is that, mm. is that Helen Garner? Yeah. Um, yeah. Bernadette yeah. Brennan's recent study That's of right, Garner's yes. writing ends yes. with a really remarkable story about, again, just mm. um, reading the Psalms in multiple translations as, as, as poetry um, and the way that kind of can be enlarging for, for our sense of language, but our sense of the world. I think you can hear that in sort of the vocabulary of the everyday person. I, I mean, I, I, I know this is perhaps a little bit of a, a, a leap, but I'm actually just thinking in terms of the, the one of the last podcast series that I listened to, which was S-Town with the language of the Deep South, which is so much more embedded in the biblical. 
and to hear people who had, um, you know, sort of left school often, you know, sort of primary school, mm-hmm. early early high school, had never, um, you, you know, sort of had a, a, a sort of a, a immersion in literature speak with the poetic um, potency of, I guess it would have been the King James, would mm. be the King James yeah. Bible, um, was breathtaking because what it did was it, it it presented this eloquence that I think is is often missing in the the the, the sort of the paired back more um, functional language that that seems to dominate today. I mean, although even was it yesterday or the day before I was reading um, an article on the ABC News website and the author was talking about her um, experience of having a heart attack, um, a recovery from that, and she, I think she. It really struck me because I was in the process of reading your book as well, Meredith. Uh, I think she used the phrase, um, now I'm going to try and live life to the full um, or live life. Um, yeah, it, it was a, so it just had yeah. this biblical resonance. A phrase from John, yeah, yeah. John's Gospel. Yeah, yes. Um, life so it, to the full. It, it, yes, There's these really potent right. packages of meaning, aren't mm-hmm. they, that um, I think resonate and, and that even if somebody isn't actually familiar with where um, their, th- this, this little sort of yeah. phrase comes yes. from, it, yes. it tends to resonate yeah. more. It, might, it might not carry theological freight anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's lots of examples of that. Like one Scales of my favourite stories, eyes. yeah, or you know, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, the twinkling of the eye by the skin of your teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we even use turning that kind of language, cheek. turning the other cheek. Yeah. But also, the writings on the wall. We use that language even yeah, to describe sport. Yes. You know, like this. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's a very transferable language. Mm-hmm. But that that sense of it enlarging the imagination, I think. Like so, Louisa Lawson, for example, who was kind of. Um, I mean, she's the mother of the the poet Henry Lawson, but in uh, uh, one of the main leaders of the female suffrage movement in New South Wales, one of the first female publishers. She had to fight the typographical association for her right to employ women in her print shop in the late 19th century. She's kind of um, one of the most important feminist journalists of that period in Australian history. She didn't have a straightforward Christian faith, but was steeped in the Bible from her Methodist upbringing. And she, when she talked about what she hoped for, the remaking of the world in a way that was inclusive for women, um, as in the professions as well as in domestic life, um, and her sense of the kind of social, the social justice she was seeking, she talked about that in terms of creating nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth, which mm-hmm. is a phrase uh, it crops up in the Old Testament, it's repeated in the New. And that, that, that idea of building a new heaven and a new earth or for the trade union movement where, you know, establishing a heavenly, a heavenly Jerusalem here on earth. That language, it's not just that it enlarges the vocabulary, but in somehow enlarges the, vi- the vision of what a society might become. And that's true in, even in the hands of people who might not have a theology of what the new heaven and earth might be, but who find uh, in, its, in that language a way of articulating their hopes for the good society, if that makes sense. And there's, there's lots mm-hmm. of examples like that, that there's something enlarging, if you like, about that grappling with, with scripture and its language and internalizing that, that's not exactly coextensive with personal faith, um, but it's still very powerful. Well, and, and I think also um, one of the more chilling examples of mm. that was when you actually addressed um, Tony Abbott's use, misuse, abuse um, of that notion of 
mankind having dominion over Earth as a, as a way of firstly discrediting, um, you know, scientists as as actually I think a religion um, of climate change. Mm, he used um, that phrase as a which, mm-hmm. you know, is, is is from from the point point of view of a literary. Critic is 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 a rich nexus of so many things happening. Yeah. Yes. Um, while sort of at the same time, there there is a sort of a papal message about uh, you know sort of the 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 care of the environment and and yeah. and, and, and and the earth. Um, that that to me seems like one of those moments in in the book um, where a, a literacy, um, you know, the ability to sort of think through and challenge that use misuse of of the Bible is is, is so important. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, I guess the power politics of how to interpret the Bible. The Bible. What authority does it still have? And what does it mean on a topic like how do we live sustainably? How do we live responsibly as one among many creatures on a finite planet? I mean, um, the question of um, how to care for people seeking asylum. What are our responsibilities there? Um, reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. There's, there's lots of huge uh, questions I think facing us now. Where it's interesting to me how often still. Um, people might appeal to the Bible for one purpose or another. Sometimes it's someone who I think Tony Abbott still identifies as a, as a Catholic, um, but might use this, the Bible in a way that runs directly counter to the leader of his faith. As you mentioned, the Pope mm. has written a, an amazing document on care for our common home. Robert Mann called one of the most remarkable pieces of writing on the challenge of climate change. Um, and so he, he's, he's using it, in directly counter to the mainstream teaching of his church. And at the same time, you get uh, people who don't identify as Christians using scripture to critique the practices of, of the church and indeed of the government, say, on um, how we respond to asylum seekers and this policy, you know, the detention policies that Australia's maintained for so long. Um, that, that the potency, the Bible somehow is still, for some people, still a relevant reference point, but in whose hands it can be used cynically um, as, as almost like a dog whistle to a tribal kind of set of supporters. And I suspect, you know, we see plenty of examples of that on an issue like climate change. But at the same time, it can be read, yeah, in a way, like there's a whole movement of eco-theology that Australian theologians have actually been at the forefront of internationally to kind of actually read the scriptures in a way that's quite challenging to the Anthropocene and to the kind of the hubris of humanity that mm. thinks, you know, that we can just live endlessly for our own comfort without any regard for either you know, our neighbours for other species or for future generations. Um, and that impulse to how do you actually love your neighbour, famously from the teaching of Jesus, um, I, I don't see how Abbott's reading could could cohere with that. Um, and, and yet, you know, who, who's to say what the Bible means and what, it's, uh, what weight that might have as we grapple with these kinds of issues as a society? Obviously, there's plenty of non-religious voices that are just as entitled... Uh, to make their cases, um, but I think it's there. There is a, a conversation that that we're part of that has often included the Bible and contest its contested meaning, um, which is which is I guess what your your point, Michelle, about um, having some sort of degree of biblical literacy in sort of in our community to be able to sort of participate in those conversations and critique uh, people's. Uh, um, you know, and, like and to call out the disingenuous. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, I actually wrote down 
I think you were saying, uh, Meredith, in your book, religi religious literacy uh, is necessary for um, navigating a diverse world. Sorry, my writing is terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that, that sort of idea of, of the... Um, yeah, well, guess, uh, the way that our world is now actually being having that religious literacy, or that, and uh, I think later on in the book you talk about biblical literacy particularly. Um, the, yeah, yeah, I mean that historical hmm. overhang of of a sort of a, a, of Christian structures that have shaped politics, nation, etc., um, really require a form of um, familiarity and understanding in order to either critique, adhere, or whatever it is that you're going to be doing, um, as opposed to sort of that uh, inability to identify where some of our ideas come mm -hmm. from, mm. Um, which I think is just a really vital um, contribution to Australian culture. And Meredith and Roberta, um, thank you both so much for joining me here today. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, our conversation and have to recommend The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History um, by Meredith Lake um, to our listeners. Um, and also to ask everyone to like us on fromthelighthouse.org. Um, feel free to make suggestions, comments, etc. We love to hear from you and Thank you, Meredith and Roberta, for joining me here today. It's been Thanks, a Michelle. pleasure. Thanks for having us in.